You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Quisley, Head of Dynamic Funds. My guest today is a recognized strategist in North America, regarded for his investment insights that lend the tools of finance and psychology in order to capture major inflection points in financial markets. He has over 25 years of experience in guiding and advising on asset allocation for a diverse set of institutional and retail advisors across North America, Europe, and Asia. Miles Ziblock provides top-down strategic investment ideas and inputs for portfolio managers and analysts here at Dynamic and his investment views are shared broadly via regularly written research reports and regular appearances on Canadian and U.S. financial media programs. Today's discussion is going to focus on the current environment over the last six months where we have seen one of the most dramatic falls market-wise and economically, and one of the most dramatic recoveries in our history. Economic forecasts are in flux, earning forecasts are moving all over the place, and the future course of the pandemic and more supporting stimulus is unknown. It's going to be a thoughtful and insightful conversation. And Miles, it's great to have you with us today. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Well, let's jump right in with an update from you on where you see equity and fixed income markets and the global economy today. And how does that compare to when we started this, this COVID crisis and pandemic? You know, so far, it's, it's been one heck of a ride in 2020. We've seen some pretty violent swings in the prices of stocks and bonds. Uh, By late March, for example, global stocks were down by more than 30% for the year. And, you know, they've rallied very hard off of that bottom and are now about flat on a year-to-date basis. The U.S. has been doing a little better than the non-U.S. equity markets. Uh, There were also some big dislocations in bond market pricing during the first quarter's financial turmoil, but that settled down with global bond prices rising and helping bonds generate total returns of just over uh, 6% uh, to this point in 2020. High quality and long duration has offered leadership in the bond market. Now, as for the economy, it is starting to climb its way back from a, a very deep hole. In the second quarter, we saw GDP growth rates fall dramatically all over the world. Uh, For the G20 countries as a whole, GDP slumped by about 18%. Uh, Very few countries were were able to escape the impacts of the viral spread uh, and the the lockdowns. But um, the third quarter has taken on a, a more optimistic tone. Uh, This turn, I think, can be attributed in in part at least to uh, huge policy stimulus, literally trillions uh, upon trillions of dollars in both fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. Uh, But it's also due to the fact that, you know, the world is adjusting uh, to some new ways of doing things. People are wearing masks, they're, they're moving around a little bit, and uh, I think they've gotten uh, much more comfortable doing things online whenever possible. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a snapback in third quarter GDP growth when countries start to report their numbers uh, over the course of the next several weeks. 
Um, timely activity indicators such as you know, retail sales, housing activity, uh, industrial production, they're all pointing to a sizable pop in GDP. North America alone uh, could see GDP rise by more than 20% uh, at an annual rate in the third quarter. And, and corporate earnings growth, uh, starting with the, the Q3 reports, uh, is likely to begin to reflect this gathering economic upturn. It's getting better, but you know, there's, there's still a long way to go to get back to anything that, that resembles normal. Miles, I think one question that so many people probably around the world are struggling with right now is how much of a disconnect is there between markets and economies? And why is it so important right now for people to you know, literally and clearly understand that the market is not the economy and the economy is not the market? That's a really good question, Mark. You know, I've often, you know, shared that my view that uh, the economy is is a very different place than the market. You know, over long periods of time, you know, obviously uh, fundamentals matter for the market, uh, but there can be periods of time uh, that are measured in years, if not decades, where market prices seem to disassociate themselves with fundamentals. And sometimes we just don't understand that the fundamentals we may be looking at have nothing to do with market fundamentals. So let me let me just give you an example of that, where you know a lot of people think that they should be just say investing in European equities because the European economy uh, looks like it's about to turn. But in fact, if you're looking at the European benchmarks, you're really investing largely in a large basket of financials and uh, energy, which aren't reflective of that economy at all. And the same can be said about most markets. The, the market structure can look very different than the economic structure. So, you know, people are always saying, should I buy Japan because Japan looks like it's gonna turn? Well, you should probably buy Japan because you think, you know, the exporters, uh, the global exporters are gonna do well because the Nikkei is full of exporters. Uh, so these are some of the things I think people need to keep in mind when they're talking about uh, the economies and of markets. They can at times be very, very different things. You know, given that our audience is, is largely Canadian, uh, let's talk a little bit about here at home and what some of the big risks and opportunities are going to be for the Canadian economy as we work through this. Yeah, so in Canada, just to give you a little, little backdrop, you know, Canadian GDP, uh, it contracted at uh, about a 38% annualized rate in the second quarter, and it was affected, I'd say, just as much, if not more, than many other countries around the world by the spread of the pandemic. Consumer spending and exports were, were hit really hard. Uh, and, and as we all know, these are important parts of the Canadian economy. But like most other countries, you know, growth rates across the Canadian economy are, are firming. And, and this is despite, let's call it $106 billion in income lost due to the struggles in the labor market. And again, like many other countries, we've seen policymakers step in to bridge the gap for the private sector. In fact, you know, Canadian incomes have, have risen uh, during the pandemic, largely because government transfers have more than offset lost income from the private sector. So again, put this in perspective, the government has, has offered $224 billion of income support. And again, that compares against the $106 billion lost in employment income. So on net, uh, incomes have grown in Canada. 
I don't think you know the policymakers in Canada or, or anywhere, uh, for that matter, are are finished with their stimulus plans. Uh, the Bank of Canada says that interest rates will stay pinned at near zero percent for the foreseeable future, and, and they're continue to buy bonds in the secondary market. You know, at a pace they say of about five billion dollars a week. The government also says that you know those who were receiving benefits through Service Canada will um, automatically transition to an EI program or an employment insurance program once they've received the maximum, say, CERB benefits. Uh, the details on that have have not been fully worked out yet. But needless to say, the deficit in Canada, the government deficit, isn't likely to. Uh, shrink uh, by all that much in our immediate future. Um, the major risk for, for the Canadian economy, I, I think, at this stage is no different from that of uh, for any other economy. Uh, we're entering flu season. Kids are, are back to school. Uh, we don't have access to a vaccine or, or any convincing sort of treatment. Um, so, so this means that, you know, a significant uh, outbreak again could, could put us back a, a few steps on the way to an eventual recovery. Let's talk about that for a second because, and you don't obviously fully understand it, you're not you know, predicting the future, but uh, there is a lot of concern around uh, you know, economic recovery, second wave issues, elections, all the rest of it. You know, in your experience of what you've seen so far, however, do you just accept now that further stimulus from policymakers around the world would, would probably kick in again if necessary? And would you expect to see the same from policymakers here in Canada? There's every indication that policymakers will continue doing what they have been doing over the last several months. The Federal Reserve, for example, has uh, signaled that they're going to continue to buy bonds, that they're going to keep interest rates low and, and hold monetary policy settings at, at a very accommodative uh, position for, for a long time to come. And I think there's a chance that we'll also see another uh, sizable fiscal package out of the U.S. within the next few months. It could be anywhere from between one to two trillion dollars of support. Uh, the election drama uh, looks like it, it might be slowing down the progress on a new package, but I, I do think it will eventually happen. And again, we are seeing this all, all around the world, in Europe, Japan. The policy authorities are, are doing their best to offset the lingering effects of, of the pandemic, and I suspect they will continue to do so until they can see some light at the end of the tunnel. And, and to me, really, that, that light is, is a producible vaccine or a successful um, treatment. You've talked a little bit, too, about what we saw uh, just before Labor Day with the Fed monetary policy announcement down in the United States and, you know, basically needing to achieve certain inflation and employment targets. Uh, does, does that also have an impact, do you think? I mean, you've already talked about the impact that's going to have on lower for longer rates. Um, does that also have an impact on if we were to go through the second wave scenario that uh, the, the impact of more stimulus does this afford on conclusion? So the Fed in late August, the Federal Reserve tweaked their operating mandate a little bit uh, and are now focused on trying to achieve an average inflation rate of about 2%. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that, you know, today the inflation rate is below 2%. And, you know, if it spends time below 2%, they're trying to then spend some time producing inflation above 2% so that over time, on average, you get something around uh, a 2% inflation rate. And let me just, you know, put this in context. 
since basically 2012, the inflation rate has averaged in the U.S. about one and a half percent. So it's below this this two percent average, and you know that's that's almost 10 years. So they've been working hard to try to get to two percent. Never mind get above two percent. Uh, so you know again. What does this tell me? This tells me that, you know, given the current operating environment, they are going to keep interest rates at very low levels for the foreseeable future. Uh, many of the board members of the Federal Reserve have have even suggested that we could see interest rates stay near zero for the next two, three, four years. So um, obviously, if the pandemic uh, was if we were to get a much more violent second wave, this would only encourage policymakers to keep their foot on the gas pedal for, for an even longer period of time. I want to just move away from, from that rates discussion for a second, Miles, and, and I know you spend a lot of time also looking at global currencies. So if we could get your views on the direction of the Canadian dollar and, and the U.S. dollar and other global currencies of consequence in your mind. I guess the big story in 2020 so far is that at least in trade-weighted terms, the U.S. dollar has uh, started to, to weaken. So it's losing some of its value against uh, the valued currencies of its main trading partners. And, you know, I hear stories, uh, for example, that the U.S. currency is weakening uh, perhaps because they haven't done as, as good of a job of, of managing the COVID situation as have other countries or that other countries are doing better economically than the U.S. And, and I, I really don't think that that is the case at all. You know, the U.S. currency is still viewed by currency investors as a safe haven currency. You know, it's an important currency like the Japanese yen. And when the economic environment tends to be more challenging, then currency investors tend to park their money in the US dollar, and that puts a bid under the US dollar and tends to drive the value of the US dollar higher. Like I said, uh, the US dollar has been weakening uh, this year, and, and currencies like the Australian dollar, the New Zealand currency, the Canadian dollar have been strengthening against the US dollar. And I think it's truly because the demand for safety is starting to moderate. And why are we seeing that? Well, I think it's because of the epic amount of policy stimulus in the system. I think it's because of what I've discussed earlier in that uh, global economies are starting to improve. So, you know, people are much more willing, or at least currency investors are much more willing to take on more currency risk. And, and in doing so, they are moving towards what we call the cyclical currencies, like I said, like the Canadian dollar. And I think that will continue to be uh, a support for the Canadian dollar and, and other currencies uh, of that ilk uh, for the next several quarters. And again, this is all assuming that the global recovery uh, continues, uh, which I suspect it will, unless um, you know, we get some very surprising data uh, with respect to the, the pandemic. So based on what you've shared with us so far and, and your views on things like currencies and rates, uh, I think a good question that would be important to a lot of our listeners would be, what lesson could an investor take from the market volatility and just the overall experience that we've gone through over the past six months, you know, in an unprecedented year like 2020? I believe that 2020 has offered uh, just one more example in, um, I'd say, a laundry list of similar examples throughout time that that the future is, is highly uncertain. 
that sticking to a, a well-defined long-term game plan is most important and much less costly than looking into your crystal ball to try to you know see where the next inflection in market prices might be. You know, 2020 I think reminds us that that financial markets are volatile, but at the same time uh, that they can be very rewarding through time. And in in these bouts of let's call it periodic bouts of of chaos, I, I think it's really critical not to lose sight of our long term portfolio goals. And if, for example, equities are part of that plan. Then, then stick with them, knowing full well that there will be periods of time when things are tough. And the same goes for your bond investments. Uh, and, and, you know, again, why is sticking with this, this strategic plan or a strategic investment plan so important? I think it's because, you know, so many studies have shown that moving things around, you know, buying and selling in ways that, that often get you away from your strategic plan are really toxic to uh, a portfolio's returns through time. And, you know, the point is uh, that with a strategic investment plan, there's really no need to invest based on what the bond or the stock market is doing today or what it did yesterday. Uh, there's no need to act, you know, based on emotion. You have that long-term plan uh, to help guide you through time. Miles, I wanted to shift to something that I know is important to you, and that is um, you're a fan of effective and efficient portfolio construction. And I think what we've been through this year, uh, especially for investors that are looking for income in their portfolios, it's, it's become a, a, you know, it's a, a difficult topic to handle uh, and certainly warrants people seeking advice. Should investors continue to look beyond the traditional portfolio of just stocks and bonds, given the environment we're in? And I know you've talked a lot about the use of alternatives uh, within portfolios and shifting away from that mindset of the traditional 60% equity, 40% fixed income you know, portfolio creation that we've been used to for so many years. I think if you look at you know how uh, alternatives have have done say just over the last six to nine months and i'm a big fan as you know of alternatives as a third pillar in in your portfolio but it's hard to to answer with pre precision how alternatives have done and and you know i don't want to skate that idea it's difficult to answer because the liquid alternative space is is very diverse it represents you know, anything and everything that provides in investors with daily liquidity, but it's not traditionally classified as a, a long only stock or bond investment. And this, you know, could include gold, currencies, equity, long, short strategies, and the, and the list really goes on. And it's further complicated by the fact that so many so-called alternatives in the marketplace are anything but alternative, that they behave just like stocks and bonds you already own. You know, I, I truly believe when you're looking at a third pillar to reinforce your portfolio, that being alternative investments, uh, you, you need to define these alternatives by their behavior. Um, they should be something that have low performance correlation to stocks and bonds and that are expected to generate a positive return through time. So, you know, let, let me just talk about these alternatives because, again, I, I do find them to be, to be very valuable for, for portfolio construction. You know, talk about a few of them. Bullion, um, gold bullion, uh, that classifies as, as an alternative, as, as a liquid alternative, in fact. And, you know, bullion is up by uh, 20, 26% this year. And keep in mind, you know, 
I'm not focusing on gold because it's up in a tough year. I'm focusing on gold uh, as an example because it has a relatively low uh, correlation to the performance of stocks and bonds, uh, and it has gone up over time. It just so happens that you know it, gold is up uh, by quite a bit this year. Uh, you know, alternatives if you're looking around the universe, uh, long short credit might be another uh, helpful example of an alternative strategy. And, and you know, I can't I can't vat uh, all long short credit products, but you know, Dynamics Long Short Credit Fund has a low correlation traditional asset classes, and it's up about four and a half percent in 2020. And uh, other ideas like long short equity, again, you know, I don't want to speak to all these different types of, of alternatives out there, only the ones I, I know well. Again, it's a very diverse universe. Uh, but Dynamics Alpha 2 is a well-known uh, long short equity fund. Uh, its biggest drawdown this year has been 4.4%, which compares, I think, very favorably to the 35% sell-off in equities. You know, and why? Because, you know, I call it long short equity, or we call it long short equity, but it's designed to be something very different uh, than a long only equity fund. So again, as I you know, as I see it, the alternatives that are doing relatively well this year are those that continue to do what they're supposed to be doing, and, and that's being a, a source for independent returns in a portfolio. And, and by independent, I mean returns that are uh, not directly connected to what. Uh, the stock or the bond market is doing a well-structured alternative tends to beat to its own drum, and I think you know it can add uh, a great flavor uh, to a portfolio, especially now when you know, for example, bond yields are so low, or people can, are concerned about you know where the equity market valuations are. So you know, do I do I think you should own uh, a basket? Uh, or, or an alternative investment or a basket, a diversified basket of alternatives, you know, as I've defined them, absolutely. The answer, the answer to me is yes. And this is, you know, not because I necessarily believe stocks or bonds are, are a bad idea right now or that alternatives are a great idea right now. You know, I want alternatives in a portfolio at any time. And, and this is because they not only build performance resilience in a multi-asset class portfolio, but will also help to reinforce the trajectory of, of a portfolio's return through time. And it's, you know, it's for exactly this reason why global pension endowment funds uh, now have portfolios with 30% or greater exposure to alternative investments. I think properly structured, they are a critical third pillar uh, in addition to stocks and bonds in order to build successful portfolios for, for the long term. I'm glad you mentioned the use of alternatives in institutional world, um, especially with respect to pension plans. You know, if I was to summarize what you just mentioned about uh, adding alternatives to for existing portfolios, it's really to, you know, add diversification to the portfolio, mitigate risk, and, you know, decrease correlations where possible. And is it safe to say that's exactly what these pensions and institutional investors have been using them for as well? And there's no reason for a retail investor to not think along those same lines, given the environment? Yes, that's a, that's a great point. So if you just think about the pension world as a whole, and I'm just going to generalize a bit, but the pension uh, world has very strict guidelines on, on what it can do and the outcomes it needs to generate to meet future pension liabilities, and those are fixed. And you know, basically, pensions right now have a return target uh, of about seven, seven and a half percent, and for them to 
at least they believe for them to achieve those those long-term return targets of seven seven half percent they think they need a very healthy helping of alternatives and and exactly like you said for the reasons uh because you know alternatives are an independent return stream uh from stocks and bonds they generate some resilience for the portfolio they give you effectively if you think about it like a car engine they give you an extra cylinder in that car engine so that if you have problems with one or the other uh, of those cylinders, uh, the odds of achieving your goals are, are still pretty high. So again, yes, the pension funds, you know, they've they've been building positions in these alternatives, and they are uh, helpful in helping them achieve their long-term uh, return targets. I can't let you off this call, and it's probably a good question for me to wrap up with. Uh, with asking about one of the, the big issues of the day, which of course is the upcoming U.S. election and. When we first scheduled this conversation between you and I, we didn't realize there'd also be now a vacant seat in the U.S. Supreme Court and all these other things that are, that are ramping up towards November 3rd. How should investors manage their expectations around the impact of, of this event? And for that matter, other geopolitical events on the markets as, as we go into the final months of this year? The elections uh, are a great uh, cocktail conversation. Definitely, the U.S. election is is great cocktail conversation. It's it's effectively a soap opera that seems to be going on there. I don't think the election should change in any way how people manage their portfolios. Uh, historically speaking, elections don't really have a long or lasting impact on on the market. Sure, there can be volatility surrounding you know, the days of the election into and, and leading out of. But ultimately, you know, the earnings fundamentals are the more important uh, thing to focus on. And, and just think about this, uh, you know, on both sides of the aisle right now, uh, like I said, they're not arguing about not spending. They're arguing on about how much to spend. So they're both, you know, thinking stimulus, uh, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, uh, in order to help um, the economy uh, given you know the the challenges being faced uh, because of the pandemic, now I, I just want to give you a, a sort of a, a reminder of a, a bit of a history lesson is that just think back to 2016 and you can go and you know Google the news articles of the time going into that election, and every single expert out there were, was telling you that if Trump wins the election, uh, the market is going to collapse. So. You know, 11 o'clock or, or there, but I can't even remember the time that, that Trump, uh, his win was decided, but it was late at night. And, you know, the, the overnight markets in Asia, the, the futures market for the U.S. fell by about 5%. And uh, by the next morning, basically the market as it opened was, was back effectively to flat. So the point being is that, uh, and, you know, here's where we are today, uh, up a lot since uh, the 2016 election. So the point being is that I really don't think it's prudent to adjust your portfolio on an election outcome. Uh, the only, you know, the, the only way I might change my mind is if there's any uh, legislation of any sort or any laws that are enacted that will threaten, materially threaten the functioning of the business cycle. And, and there you, you take steps accordingly. But as I see it right now, I, I don't really see anything that comes out of this election uh, that will threaten the business cycle. And in an essence, I'm not convinced that any investor should be taking any significant steps either way uh, because of the election. And, and that's not just 
with respect to the U.S. election. I will say that with respect to every election out there, whether it's the Japanese election, the European election, the Canadian election, any types of elections, um, that's largely just noise for, for investors. Uh, and, and they should really just sort of forget about that and, and move on to bigger and better things like their strategic plan and how to hit their long-term goals. Miles, our conversations are always insightful and, and much appreciated. I want to thank you uh, for the time you took to share your views with us today, and it was great having you here. Thanks a lot. I want to thank all of our listeners as well for joining us, and I think so much of what Miles talked about also lends itself to the fact that, as always, we recommend you talk to a qualified financial advisor and uh, thanks everyone for uh, joining us today. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.